0: The History of the World Podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 25. The Battle of Eddington. debate the exact location of the Battle of Eddington. But most historians accept a location close to the village of Eddington in the English county of Wiltshire. There is no firm reason to believe that it wasn't at this location but there are other settlements in the south of England that share the same name so the name itself is not a conclusive factor. Wiltshire is in the south of England and within the boundaries of the early medieval Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex. This is not far from the historical megalithic site of Stonehenge, which is believed to have been between four and 5,000 years old. Stonehenge has been noted for being a location used for spiritual ceremonies by Druids, who are the observers of Celtic paganism but this does not mean that Stonehenge was built by Celtic Britons. It may well date to before Celtic language speakers ever set foot in the British Isles. The general theory is that Celtic speakers arrived in Britain around the year 1000 BCE, but there is plenty of debate about this. When the Romans arrived in the 1st century BCE, They encountered a mixture of tribes, mainly Celtic language speakers. In the south of England we know of the Celtic speaking Girotriges, and they would have been neighbors of various Belgic tribes such as the Atrabates that had likely migrated from the continent to settle southern England too. When the Romans invaded Britannia under Emperor Claudius in the year forty three, All of these southern English lands were very quickly brought under Roman influence. The Celtic speakers of Britannia, otherwise called the Britons, remained under Roman rule for almost four centuries. The Britons retained their culture and language but would also benefit from the advanced and organised nature of the Romans and with Roman Britain being relatively easy to defend from invaders and rebellions there is not a lot of political change within Romano-Britain during these centuries. When the Romans left Britannia in 410 the Romano-Britons appeared to still be able to distinguish their cultural histories, so the Belgic tribes could still be distinguished from the British tribes, for example. Wessex The Kingdom of Wessex was essentially, as suggested by the name, the Kingdom of the West Saxons. West because they were west of other Saxons who settled in Britain, and Saxons because they were Germanic Saxons from the continent. The Saxons originated from northwest Europe, which was dominated by Germanic tribes in the 5th century. The Franks were able to gain control of the northern coastal lands of the modern country of France, and the Frisians occupied the coastal lands further north more or less the modern country of Netherlands. Further around on the north-facing coast of the modern country of Germany and south of Jutland was the area that we know to be the origin of the Saxons, and as such this would become the area of Germany that came to be known as Saxony. During the Roman occupation of Britain, the Saxons were seafarers, and often ventured along the coast of the North Sea and down to the English Channel, where they would be able to take the relatively short journey over the channel of water to the island of Great Britain and try to raid the island, despite the Romans being prepared to defend it with their Saxon shore forts, constructed along the southern and eastern coasts of Great Britain. The Saxon shore was named... By the Romans, and we assume that it was named due to the aggression of the Saxons. But it has been speculated that there could be another reason, such as these areas were settled by Saxons, although this does seem less likely. It seems likelier due to contemporary writings that the Saxons, as well as the Franks, were conducting coastal raids of northwest Europe during the later years of the Roman Empire. When the Romans left Britannia and the Romano-Britons were left to their own devices, there is a suggestion that the Roman Emperor Honorius wrote letters to them to tell them that they had to now defend themselves because the Romans could no longer offer any support. This is something that has since been referred to as the Rescript of Honorius but it has since been suggested that this has been a dressed-up version of a mere suggestion that Honorius was even referring to the Britons at all. Either way, Roman legionaries were recalled to Rome and the Romano-Britons were at the mercy of Germanic raiders and invaders. It is difficult to tell how quickly the Saxons tried to take advantage of the absence of the Romans, but we also know that Angles and Jutes from Jutland would show an interest in Great Britain in the decades following the Roman abandonment. Saxons and Jutes would be concentrated in the south of England with the angles tending to be further north. The Jutes would only have a comparatively small influence around the Kingdom of Kent and the Isle of Wight with some of its facing mainland coastal lands. The rest of the south of England was dominated by the Saxons. It is extremely difficult to gauge the nature of the migrations and settlements, but the naming of Saxon kingdoms refer to the East, Middle, South and West, therefore Essex, Middlesex, Sussex and Wessex. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was written many centuries after the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons in Great Britain, but it refers back to the time of settlement. It specifically refers to a man called Churditch as the founder of the Kingdom of Wessex and therefore its first king. Cherditch supposedly arrived in Wessex in the year 495 alongside Kinrich who was either his son or his grandson. They are stated to have defeated the Welsh and then the Britons in battle in order to eventually establish the Kingdom of Wessex in the south of the modern country of England in the year 519. The succeeding kings would continue to expand the influence of Wessex, consuming more cities into its territory, such as Sirensister, Gloucester and a favourite city of the Romans called Bath. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that Wessex kings would become Bretwalders by the end of the 6th century. Bretwalders are a little bit indistinct in what exactly they were, but historians have approximated it to possibly be equivalent to an Anglo-Saxon overlord or a king of kings, which suggests how much esteem that Wessex had gained among the Anglo-Saxon realms. The other powerful kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England during the 7th century were Northumbria and Mercia. King Oswald of Northumbria ruled his kingdom from 633 and worked hard to promote Christianity. When Oswald became the king of Northumbria, his neighbours in Mercia were being ruled by the pagan monarch King Pender. Oswald actively encouraged the king of Wessex, called Cunigils, to convert to Christianity, possibly to gain support against Penda. And so here is evidence of Christianity reaching Wessex. It may have been that Wessex was concerned about the growing power of Mercia that led to their readiness to make an alliance with the Northumbrians. But Wessex would spend the rest of the 7th century and the beginning of the 8th attempting to elevate its power and influence in the south of England in order to counterbalance the power of Mercia to its north. A new Wessex capital was established at Winchester and the Wessex borders expanded to consume most of the lands of southern Great Britain. This did not stop Mercia from becoming the most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdom during the 8th century, especially while Mercia was under the rule of King Offa. Offa of Mercia died in 796, and in the year 802, King Edgbert became the new ruler of Wessex, and this signalled a decline in Mercian power and a rise in power from Wessex. Edgbert targeted the Britons of Devon and Cornwall in the far southwest peninsula of the island before successfully taking control of Kent, Sussex, Surrey and Essex. At one point, Egbert was recognised as the Bretwalder of Anglo-Saxon England. It was at this point that Wessex was attacked by the Danes. The Danes With all of the Germanic tribes we don't have any contemporary writings about their specific individual origins and therefore we have to take guesses based on what we do know. The Danes are one Germanic tribe who does not appear to have been distinguished or recognised by the Romans during the years of the Roman Empire and this may simply be because they originated from deep into the Baltic Sea as opposed to the North Sea coastlines or that contemporary recordings of them no longer exist. Some have suggested that they share a close ancestral link with the Swedes, but we could likewise suggest that this could be somewhat logical due to the linguistic links with both the Swedes and the Danes speaking Old Norse, which was a branch of the Germanic languages. The Byzantine historian Jordanes, who was alive during the 6th century, tells us from recovered information about the presence of the Danes and the Swedes in the lands of what we recognise today as the modern country of Sweden. The other ethnicity recognised are the Jutar, and there exists a degree of confusion about who exactly the Juthar represent in terms of how they are referred to in other texts. The Jötar, who are also referred to as occupying lands on the Swedish lands of the Scandinavian peninsula, may be the same people who occupied the Baltic island of Gotland, which is referred to as home of the Gutes, whose name in Old Norse is Götar. The Gutes may be synonymous with the Goths, who are the Germanic tribes who had migrated southwards in the previous centuries to eventually become the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. We also see reference in Scandinavian history to a people called the Geats, who many believe had the same origins as the Goots and the Goths, and just ultimately became distinct. The Geats gave their name to the Jörte Elv, which is the river that gave its name to the city of Göteborg, which is anglicised as Gothenburg. So there are plenty of name links there that may also explain the reason for the coincidence with the names Goths and Gothenburg. The question arises about how the Danes were in Sweden and not the modern country of Denmark, which is named after them. We're not completely sure of the circumstances due to a lack of written records, but we can feel somewhat confident that the Danes migrated onto the large Baltic island of Zealand and then the northern European peninsula of Jutland. The Old English poem Beowulf references Scandinavia during the early medieval period and mentions the Danes and mentions that they have kings. The poem also mentions that the Danes were raiders and raided the lands of the Frisians, who were the Germanic tribe occupying the lands of the modern country of the Netherlands, and we referenced this earlier in the episode when we were referencing the Saxons. Jutland may have been occupied by Jutes in the north and Angles in the south when the Danes arrived from Sweden. In that case, it could be very likely that the Danish migration contributed towards the migration of Jutes and Angles southwards into the lands of the Saxons in the north of the modern country of Germany and then consequentially the island of Great Britain. This stands to reason if we recognise the aggression of the Danes described in Beowulf and the impact it may have had on the less aggressive occupants of Jutland. This is speculation but it also seems very reasonable. It is also reasonable to speculate that the Danes were hardened by the harshness of survival in Scandinavian lands with their limited agricultural potential and this turned the Danes into terrible neighbours and this is recognised as far south as the realms of the Franks and is referenced as early as the writings of Gregory of Tours in the 6th century. This demonstrates the mobility of the Danes and is highly suggestive of a behaviour that is typical of Viking societies, which we know the Danes to have been an ethnic origin of. The Danes learned to be skilled shipbuilders, and these would be the type of ships that we familiarise as Viking longboats. The Danes raided coastal lands of northwest Europe. In the late 780s, the island of Portland in the south of Wessex was visited by three Viking longboats. Whether the Viking longboats arrived here deliberately or by accident is a matter for discussion. Local governors in Anglo-Saxon England are called Reeves and the Reeve who was responsible for the island of Portland attempted to impose a tax on these unexpected Danish visitors. The Danes murdered the Reeve and members of his retinue and moved on. The infamous raid of Lindisfarne by the Danish Vikings in the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Northumbria happened just a few years after this murderous act in Wessex. These events triggered a fierce interest in the lands and wealth of the British Isles from both Danish and Norwegian Vikings which saw reports of Viking raids all over the place from Dublin in Ireland to the island of Iona in Scotland and in Kent in the far south east. Danes killed the King of the Picts in the north of Scotland. In the 840s, Danes attempted to attack Wessex from the west by sailing up the Severn River and turning into the River Parrot, but they were defeated by men under the command of local earls and bishops from this local area. It would have been around this time that King Alfred the Great was born. Alfred the Great Alfred was born in the year 849 in the village of Wanating, which is the modern English town of Wantage. When he was born, his father was the King of Wessex, ruling as King Atherwolf. Alfred had four older brothers. The eldest one was named the King of Kent, which had been brought under the control of Wessex. Alfred also had an older sister who was married to the King of Mercia while Alfred was still an infant, so Athelwulf was working hard to keep Wessex as the most powerful kingdom of Anglo-Saxon England. Alfred was sent to Rome as a child where the Pope Leo IV invested him ceremonially as a consul. He may have been accompanied by his father, the King who we know to have travelled to Rome at a similar time. But in his absence, Æthelwulf's son and Alfred's older brother Æthelbald took control of the Wessex throne and when Æthelwulf returned, he couldn't successfully regain his kingdom. Æthelbald died in 860 and was succeeded by his younger brother Ethelbert. Throughout all of these reigns, the Kingdom of Wessex was repeatedly attacked by the Danish Vikings. Athelbert was succeeded by his younger brother Athelred in 865, which was a very important year in the history of Great Britain. It was in this year that the Danes arrived with their biggest army that had ever graced British soil, referred to as the Great Heathen Army this Danish army were prepared for more than just a raid. The Danes wintered in East Anglia, giving the king there very little choice about it. After the Danes marched on York the following year, King Athelred of Wessex and his younger brother Alfred, now around 17 years of age, knew that they could no longer ignore the threat. Athelred and Alfred joined King Burgrid of Mercia, who, if you remember, was married to their older sister, and together they besieged the city of Nottingham, which was occupied by the Danes, but they could not sustain the siege. Nonetheless, the Danes decided to go back to York. They then conquered East Anglia and reportedly killed and blood-eagled the King Edmund, who refused to denounce Christianity Edmund's death has caused him to be celebrated as a Christian martyr the Viking act of blood eagling is believed to be a gruesome ritual where the lungs were extracted from the back of the victim's broken ribcage like a pair of wings with Northumbria and East Anglia conquered and Mercia now subject to the Danes the next target would be Wessex Alfred spent most of his days either preparing for battle or actually in battle with the Danes with mixed results, with some battles going in favour of the Danes and other in favour of Wessex. When King Athelred died in 871, it was not sensible for the throne to pass down to his infant son while Wessex was at war, and so Alfred was crowned the new king something that he may never have expected, being the fifth son of his father. The Danes continued to attack, even while Alfred was attending his older brother's funeral. The pressure created by the Vikings was too much, and Alfred paid the Danes to stay away, and so they did. Before Alfred had paid off the Danes, he had to fend off a wave of serious pressure inflicted by the remnants of the great heathen army, the Danish force that had landed in East Anglia in 865, and the one that took control of all of Anglo-Saxon England, apart from Wessex. When it became apparent that the Danes would require additional force to be able to go to war with Wessex, they would be joined by a new wave of Danish forces called the Great Summer Army, led by a man called Guthrum, among others. The Great Summer Army sailed up the River Thames to the town of Reading, where they joined with the existing Danish army. After defeating the Wessexians in battle, King Alfred paid the Guthrums and the Danes to leave and so they sailed back downriver and then returned to Northumbria to deal with the rebellion. We know very little about Guthrum's early years other than he was a nephew of a Danish king, Horik II. Guthrum may have accompanied the Danish force that took control of the important settlement of Repton that had the benefit of the river Trent for the safe banking of their ships. Alfred's brother-in-law, King Burgred of Mercia, fled overseas, never to return, and now Mercia had been brought into the Danish realm. Now that the reigns had firm control of Northumbria, East Anglia and Mercia, they moved an army to Cambridge to consider the conquest of Wessex once again. Alfred could not telegraph Guthrum's plans. Prelude to the Battle The Danish army waited for the accompaniment of a naval fleet before they tracked each other along the south coast of Great Britain all the way along to the settlement of Wareham an important coastal town of Wessex. The Danes took control of the town and despite Alfred's best attempts to lay them under siege the Danes would survive the winter. Alfred was forced to negotiate terms and the Danes appeared to agree to terms but this seemed to be a ruse because the Danes simply ignored the peace terms and continued on to the city of Exeter slaughtering the wessex hostages that they were holding as part of the negotiations the Danes were still chancing their luck by hopping from wessex settlement to wessex settlement alfred was in pursuit and a lot of the Danish fleet was lost in storms along the way. The city walls at Exeter provided a welcome defence for the Danes from the pursuing Wessex Saxons. This time the Danes had to agree to terms more favourable to Alfred in order to be allowed to retreat back to Mercia. However, this would be when and where Guthrum would formulate a new plan for the conquest of Wessex. It was after Alfred had celebrated Christmas in Chippingham that Guthrum sneaked down to Gloucester and launched a surprise attack targeting Alfred himself. Alfred would not have expected this due to the fact that it was the winter and campaigning was uncommon in winter. Most of the Viking boats would be banked during the winter for their own protection Alfred and his family fled for their lives and they could only flee on foot into the floodlands of the English county of Somerset. I read from one source that Somerset was named due to the suitability of the lands for summer grazing. If this is true, then it may also be a reflection of its unsuitability during the winter months, the months which Alfred was desperately attempting to flee during according to the 11th or 12th century book called The Old English Life of St. Neot. While Alfred was negotiating the marshes with a strong degree of anonymity to avoid capture, he stumbled across a swineherd's house, and while sheltering inside and contemplating his position, did not notice that the swineherd's wife's buns were burning in the oven, and she scolded Alfred, having no knowledge of him being the king. Most historians consider this story as an unreliable tale, unfortunately, especially as the book deliberately looks to glorify King Alfred. Alfred would wait both incognito and undetected until after Easter, fortifying the marshy Isle of Athelney and possibly stockpiling weapons. Now that the weather was improving, Alfred would be able to get the message out to the villages of Wessex to summon them to a secret meeting to decide what should be done to prevent Wessex falling to the Danes. Alfred knew that it would not be long before Guthrum would learn of this and decided to rally the West Saxons to join together as an army to do battle with the Danes and this would need to be done right away. Alfred moved his Machist army back towards the village of Eddington, and a portion of the Danish army would also move against the West Saxons in order to stop their progress. The Battle of Eddington. Disappointingly, we have very little detail about the exact events at the Battle of Eddington itself. We know that it is likely to have happened in the first half of the month of May. We don't even really know if Guthrum was actually on the battlefield or not. Guthrum's Danes would have been on the battlefield with their axes, spears and swords, many of these weapons which would have been stolen from others. Alfred's West Saxons came with whatever they could lay their hands on. The Saxons had specialised weapons such as the ash, so-called because it was made from the wood of an ash tree and essentially it was a composite spear made from the durable ash tree wood with a metal blade. It may have been that not the entire Danish army was engaged with Alfred's West Saxons during this conflict but the Wessexians fought hard and pushed the Danes into a retreat. The Danes Decided to take refuge in the town of Chippenham, but it does appear that Guthrum was in Chippenham with his men, even though we cannot be sure if he led them on the battlefield on this particular occasion. Aftermath Alfred and the West Saxons surrounded Chippenham, holding the town under siege in order to starve Guthrum and the Danes out. It took two long weeks, but eventually it worked. Alfred had forced Guthrum into a position of calling for a truce. Alfred had managed to put the Danes into a tough position, and was wary that if he slaughtered Guthrum, then there would simply be another Viking army under another Viking leader that would want to challenge Wessex down the line. So Alfred decided that it would be sensible to use Guthrum as a means to create peace in Wessex and he would do this by granting Guthrum lands and secure his loyalty by making him convert to Christianity and swear an oath by his new religion. Guthrum and his most important men were baptised together before being invited to negotiate a treaty whereby Guthrum would return to East Anglia, which belonged to the Danes in any case, and then it was agreed that the Kingdom of Mercia would be split between Wessex and the Danes, effectively drawing a diagonal line from the north-west to the southeast that acted as a border between the Saxons and the Danes, with the northeast of Anglo-Saxon England now being defined as the Danelaw. The Danelaw can describe a territory of Great Britain under Danish control. The creation of an area of south-west Great Britain under the rule of King Alfred and Wessex marked the beginnings of what would become the exclusive territory of England, whose name derived from the land of the Angles, despite Wessex being named after the Saxons. The recognition of a country called England would possibly not be taken seriously until the reign of Alfred's son, Athelstan. Even though Danish Vikings did still attempt to attack Wessex after this battle, it was not at the instigation of Guthrum who had settled his lands and allowed Alfred the opportunity to try to consolidate his kingdom. Alfred reformed the governing class of Wessex who had demonstrated weakness in the face of the Viking threat prior to the Battle of Eddington and he sought to rebuild London and turn it into a defensible centre of commerce due to its ease of access to the continent, thanks to the River Thames. Alfred would also commission the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which would act as a diary of the history of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms it is likely that he recognised the value of a deep history of the Anglo-Saxons in order to give his people a sense of national identity that would unite them in the face of foreign threats. Despite the fact that the Danish threats had been diminished by their defeat at the Battle of Eddington, Guthrum was still a Danish Viking at heart and was happy to support other Danes who wanted to threaten Wessex. Alfred's conquest and consolidation of London was designed to give him more power against the Danes. Guthrum ruled his realm up until his death, probably around 11 years after Eddington. The Chronicle suggests that there continued to be Danish rulers in East Anglia until the area was conquered by Alfred's son, Edward, in the early 10th century. Although the Anglo-Saxons were able to become dominant over the area of the Danelaw as the 10th century progressed, Danish influence over the lands of northern England remained present right through until the 11th century. Berwick, Derby, Grimsby, Lowestoft, Scunthorpe and Skegness are all fine examples of towns in England whose names derive from Old Norse language. There are very many others. Alfred is the only English king who has earned the moniker, the Great. Alfred's actions enabled England to evolve. Without his victory, England may never have evolved to become the England that we know today. It could have become an extension of Scandinavia, not too dissimilar to Iceland, but with the integration of the Anglo-Saxon population. He fortified his realm and created the notion of the boroughs of England overseen by these fortified burrs. He reformed the Anglo Saxon army so that it was much more structured within the population, with a rotation of manpower from around his kingdom. He created the Anglo Saxon Chronicle, which was undoubtedly the go to story of the foundation of the evolution of the modern state of England and an anchor of English patriotism. Some versions of this chronicle were maintained right up until the 12th century, long after the Norman invasion of England. The chronicles were written in English, the language of the Anglo-Saxon people, and not in Latin, the language of the Christian church. Thanks to Alfred, the man who, as the fifth son of his father, was never meant to become king, Wessex went from being a brave Anglo-Saxon kingdom under threat from Danish Vikings to a thriving and vibrant kingdom capable of overshadowing the Danish settlers of Great Britain. Alfred died in 899, leaving his descendants and successors to complete the task of reconquering the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and creating the modern country of England. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode on uh, the Battle of Eddington and the story of Alfred the Great. And um, it'd probably be remiss of me not to mention the uh, the white horse, the Westbury white horse that has been... Uh, it's like a chalk horse that's been created um, on a hilltop that can be viewed for for distances around. It's it's like a geoglyph of sorts. And um, the, the one... Prehistoric geoglyph on English hills in the south of England uh, that we recognise is the Uffington White Horse, and it's created this tradition, which has certainly been very, uh, very much maintained in the last couple of uh, couple of hundred years of creating chalk figures on English hilltops. Uh, so you can see many of these white horses now. The Westbury White Horse. Um, there's a suspicion uh, it's it's often cited as being um, being created um, to commemorate the Battle of Eddington but um, many believe that the the horse may have only been there since the 18th century but um certainly if there was a horse there before it could have dated back who knows when there's evidence of prehistoric uh, geoglyphs chalk horse geoglyphs in the south of England so it could have been created anytime. Um, but anyway um, that is the story of the Battle of Eddington and the story of how uh, the birth of England sort of came about really the, the birth of the modern state of England um, so um, thank you very much for listening The Ancient World Cup So once again the Ancient World Cup uh, we're currently in round two. Uh, let me just uh, briefly explain for those of you who are a bit late on the scene. I, I, I'm conscious that I've not explained exactly what we're doing. What we did, we picked out 64 teams uh, from the ancient world. Now, these teams will be any uh, any nation or peoples that uh, from the ancient or prehistory that that kind of. Well, actually, I say prehistory. Um, mainly from the ancient historical era um, and uh, the classical antiquity. So we, we we picked out 64 nations or 64 ethnicities and uh, we created 16 groups. Out of those 16 groups, we managed to get uh, down to 32 teams, 32 of the most popular teams out of those initial 64. And now... Those 32 teams are playing each other in head-to-head matches, straight knockout, so that we will end up with a last 16 who will uh, advance to Round 3. We've already had four of the matches um, in this ancient World Cup, so we already know four of the teams that are in Round 3. And they are the Macedonians, the Scythians, the Britons and the Franks. Now, this week, this last week just gone on all of the uh, History of the World podcast social media platforms, uh, we have been asking you to vote uh, for a winner from the Ancient Babylonians and uh, the Hittites. So uh, two cultures from the Middle East, that area, and, uh, or the Ancient Near East, we, sh- we should call it perhaps, and um, uh, two uh, contemporaries of one another. Um, The Hittites, of course, sacked uh, Babylon um, during the 16th century BCE. And um, we now find out whether the Babylonians have got their revenge thanks to your votes. Well, I can tell you it was a close-run thing. It's the closest of the five matches so far in this round. Um and um, the winner had 58% of the vote. And I can now reveal that that winner is the Babylonians. So the Babylonians advanced to round three. The Hittites are now knocked out of the competition. That's it for them. And um, the Babylonians have got their revenge on the Hittites. How about that? Well, they will be playing in the next round, the winner of our next game and uh, our next game will be posted on social media in the next day or two. Uh, Keep an eye on the History of the World podcast Facebook group, um, the uh, History of the World podcast fan group, and uh, the Twitter account, also the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, and the Tapper Talk discussion forum. If you're wondering what all of those are, then simply go to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the interactor link. The match uh, this week will be match number six from the round of thirty-two, round number two, and uh, it will be between uh, one of the more fancied teams to win the whole thing, the ancient Egyptians, and they will be going up against the Seleucids, who uh, were a uh, were a creation of the diadochi of the Alexander the Great, So the Seleucids uh, were the were the uh, Greek speaking um the Greek speaking rulers of of Persia if you like you could you could summarize them quite loosely as as the Greek speaking rulers of Persia um who um who were around during the later years of the Roman Republic so um the ancient Egyptians versus the Seleucids of course the ancient Egyptians were how can we How can we describe then that we don't already know the great pyramid builders and and the tomb builders of the Nile Valley? Um, So um, there we go. Next week, Ancient Egypt versus uh, Seleucia, the Seleucids, and um, voting will be next week. We'll give you the results on the next podcast episode. Listener messages and reviews. So... Not a lot to report this week with listener messages and reviews, so it should uh, should be quite quick to get through it all. Um, I'll start with Dan P Laguna Beach from uh, USA, who's put amazing, such an incredible pleasure to listen to, beautifully presented and extremely well researched. For those of you that are fans of In Our Time, that are amazed at Lord Bragg's granular knowledge of the material, Chris meets and exceeds that test. Thank you for this amazing resource. Dan Laguna Beach, CA. Um, I, you know, I listen to in our time where I can, and uh, certainly um, you know, there, there's a. I think there is a, a an episode that focuses on the Battle of Eddington, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, no, I'm always humble uh, in the in the uh, in the shadow of uh, of Melvin Bragg myself. Anyway, so I'm I'm not sure my history knowledge compares to his, but. Um, Uh, but thank you anyway It's quite a kind compliment I must admit Um, I received uh, an email this week Um, I'm just going to grab it now just clicking between pages here Uh, Nero uh, Asmodan from Canada has put um, hello Chris I am from Ontario, Canada I absolutely love the show I found it last summer for my drives to and from work lately I've been fairly sick and I've Taking a lot of time at work. I'm sorry to hear that, um, Nero. Hope you, um hope you get better very soon. As a man of opportunity, I only saw the one possible option to binge the show for eight to ten hours a day and catch up as fast as possible. I'll be caught up by the end of today and I'm now at loss of what else to do. I'm considering starting my own podcast, all credits of inspiration to you on the subject of evolutionary speculation. For example, flying fish actually becoming avian fish. In some million years, and how that kind of animal could interact with the environment. Maybe once I'm better, I'll consider recording a pilot episode. Best wishes from Camden love. What a fancy, what a fantastic subject to consider podcasting about. Um, I, I certainly on on a similar but but also different subject. Um, there was a, a magazine uh, that was published recently, which uh, which I'm quite fond of, which speculates uh. What would have happened uh, had certain events in history not happened? So, for example, had uh, JFK not been shot, for example, what what would have been the outcome? I'm sort of, um, I think uh, every everyone who's sort of very much passionate about history will always ask those questions. What if? So, um, a good subject choice there, I would say Nero. Um, if you uh, would like to support the podcast. Uh, you can. You can uh, sign up to make a monthly contribution at our Patreon page. Now, if you, uh, if you want to have a look, then go ahead to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. Help me to make this podcast better and better. I, I like to spend my money on recording equipment and, uh, and uh, books, and resources that can aid me in making this podcast as good as possible. When you sign up to uh, make a monthly contribution, uh, you will become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, a very exclusive club of people who support this podcast. And also you'll qualify for monthly rewards, and that might be uh, the ability to commission an episode on the subject of your choice, it might be gifts which uh, come through the post wherever you are in the world. I can send you these gifts. Uh, they will be uh, anything from fridge magnets right up to uh, mugs and and t shirts. Uh, so why not come and have a look and, and support the podcast? Um, this week it is my pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Diane as a new patron of the podcast. So thank you, Diane. You are now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Anyway, that's it. Uh, next week, it's going to be... um, I'm, Yeah, I'm, I, I say this every week, don't I? I'm excited for next week's episode. We explore more Viking activity around the British Isles, but instead of focusing on Great Britain, which we do oh so often, um, we are going to be focusing on Ireland. So we're going to be looking at the history of Ireland, Um, we're going to be looking at the Battle of uh, Clontarf and um, in order to do that we need to understand Ireland, so we'll be looking at Irish history from the prehistoric right up until this battle, Um, the emergence of the Irish kingdoms and the impact of the Vikings on Ireland and Irish history, we'll be uh, finding out who Brian Boru is, so Um, interesting episode um, coming up next week so until then have a great week everyone and be good The History of the World Podcast written and presented by Chris Hasler Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.